Hi, I'm Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Suleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. And thank you for joining us on this CardioScripts Classics episode, where we take a step back in time and explore literature that got us to where we are today. Today on CardioScripts, I am joined by our own Liz Salaika to discuss hypertension and review classic articles related to the topic. So I've never had the pleasure of sharing your bio on CardioScripts, and so I'm excited to share that with everyone today. But Dr. Liz Salaika received her PharmD from the University of Houston College of Pharmacy and completed a PGY-1 in pharmacy practice at the Michael E. DeBakey Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Houston, Texas, followed by a PGY-2 in cardiology at the University of Kentucky Healthcare. She currently serves as a clinical assistant professor at UHCOP and practices as a cardiology pharmacist within the cardiac care unit and within the cardiology consults team at the Michael E. DeBakey VA. And so it is just so fun to have you on, not as our host today, but as our guest. Welcome to CardioScripts. Well, thank you for that warm welcome. It is a little bit different being in the guest seat versus the host seat. I'll just say that. Does it feel a little warmer there? A little, a little bit warmer, but I am in Houston, so that could be part of it. Yes. And I know things have been heating up there with you all with COVID too. So this is just a tough time for everyone. And so we hope everyone in our audience is staying safe out there and um, continuing to work hard for all these patients. I know this is just challenging and we're going to try to get through a topic that I know has grown into an area of interest for you and, and really just one that we want to make sure we help our audience um, have some of that background information to know why we do what we do and maybe why the guidelines are what the guidelines are. You know, and where to begin with hypertension? We talked about how big of a topic this is and how, um, you know, we're going to try to stay in the wheelhouse of essential hypertension, but dance around some of the special populations. And, you know, it seems like no better place to start than the 1991 JAMA publication of the Systolic Hypertension in Elderly Program or the SHEP trial which examined the ability of chlorthalidone plus or minus atenolol in patients that were greater than 60 years old and had isolated systolic hypertension. And that was defined as systolic blood pressure of greater than 160, but less than 215. So a really wide range there, but all patients whose diastolic blood pressure was less than 90. And they were examining um, the ability of it to reduce cardiovascular endpoints. So tell us a little bit about SHEP and your thoughts on it, Liz. Yeah. So, so thanks for setting that up, Tracy. SHEP was a really nice trial for a couple of reasons. So one, it was one of those landmarks trials that kind of established diazidiuretics, but chlorthalidone specifically um, within the realm of hypertension, looking at our elderly patients and then really looking at isolated systolic hypertension. So I think it's nice to kind of jump in and talk about some of the additional agents they added on just to kind of highlight how hypertension management has changed from 30 years ago. So start out with chlorthalidone 12.5, and then you could add on additionally a tenolol um, or reserpine, and they were comparing patients on uh, chlorthalidone or these additional agents versus placebo when their primary endpoint was looking at stroke. So ultimately what they found was this reduced systolic blood pressure of 22 millimeters of mercury in those who were on treatment uh, versus those who were on placebo. And they found a decrease in stroke 
4.1% versus 6.3% with a number needed to treat of about 46. So this is really one of those landmark uh, hypertension trials that came out really looking at management of our hypertension patients. So maybe continuing in that same vein to talk about how each of those initial drug therapies that are recommended was established. It's probably fair to say that the CIST-UR study, which was published in 1997, had a very similar patient population to SHEP and really showed us the benefit of dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker with the use of nitrendipine. So do you want to fill us in a little bit on some of those details as well? So SHEP really established that diuretic based therapy for hypertension management. But the question was, well, what about our, our calcium channel blockers that were coming out? It's really where assist year comes into play. And so they looked at nitrendipine, that's a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. So important to point that out. Just as Tracy said, so similar population to SHEP, they had to be greater than 60 years of age. Their mean age was about 70 years. And their systolic blood pressure to be greater than 160 with a diastolic of less than 95. So again, isolated systolic hypertension. And their goal blood pressure was less than 150 millimeters of mercury. And so patients were randomized either to nitrendipine um, or placebo. And in those who are on the dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker group, a little bit different than what we saw with SHEP, your add-on agents could be enalapril or hydrochlorothiazide, so, so not chlorothalidone, but a thiazide diuretic. And again, their primary endpoint was looking at stroke. The baseline systolics in these patients um, in both groups were 174 millimeters of mercury. This fell by a mean of 23 millimeters of mercury in those who were on the treatment group versus 13 millimeters of mercury in those who were on placebo. So again, they found a, a reduction of stroke, just like they did in the SHEP trial in patients who were randomized to the nitrendipine group um, versus those in the placebo. So again, this is old trial, still randomizing patients with hypertension to placebo, but this helped kind of established uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers within the realm of hypertension management. Great. And so I think probably our audience is thinking, well, when did ACE inhibitors and ARBs come into the game here? And so it might be fair to say that that really became established as all of these are considered equal amongst the guidelines based on the 2002 publication of the All Hat trial. So let's dive a little bit into All Hat because there's a lot to discuss there. We could do an entire CardioScripts episode on All Hat. And as we're recording this, I'm thinking maybe we should because there is a ton to dig into here with um, the treatment that they used and then some of the different populations. And there's a lot. On that, we'll dive in a little bit to that now, we'll probably touch a little bit more on that later on in this episode. Um, but All Hat was looking at hypertension patients who were deemed high risk, and they wanted to see, is there a difference in outcomes in patients who are on an ACE inhibitor or a calcium channel blocker and comparing both of those to um, being on a diuretic? And so the ACE inhibitor they chose was lisinopril, amlodipine, another dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, or chlorothalidone. So going back to that diuretic agent. And their primary outcome was a little bit different than what we talked about with Shep and Sisters. They were looking at fatal coronary heart disease or non-fatal MI. And their blood pressure goal was a little more stringent too than what we discussed with Sisters. They were aiming for a blood pressure of less than 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury in these patients. So I'll point out some of the step two and step three agents that were um, options. So clonidine, atenolol, and, and reserpine were step two agents. And then step three was uh, hydralazine. So baseline, the patients were like 67 years old. About half of them were white. 
about 31 to 32% were black non-Hispanic patients. And their baseline blood pressure was 146 over 84 millimeters of mercury. So a little bit lower at baseline than what we discussed with Shep and Sister. There were no significant differences that were found between chlorthalidone versus lisinopril or chlorthalidone versus amlodipine when they were looking at the primary outcome. So that is something that is important to note. Um, But when you dive more into some of those secondary endpoints, there are some differences. Um, One is that chlorthalidone was found to have a lower incidence of heart failure and heart failure hospitalization compared to amlodipine. And Tracy, I'll let you comment on that or give your thoughts on that in just a second. Chlorthalidone was found to be superior to lisinopril in terms of decreasing blood pressure and preventing some of our aggregate cardiovascular events like stroke, heart failure, angina, coronary vascularization. So again, the primary outcome, there was no difference between a diuretic agent versus our ACE inhibitor or calcium channel blocker, but there were some differences with regards to our secondary endpoints. And the other big difference that is highlighted with all hat is um, the differences we found between different races. And so we found when we looked at the incidence of stroke and combined cardiovascular disease in black patients uh, versus our non-black population that was included, um, black patients were found to have more stroke or combined cardiovascular disease when they were on lisinopril versus when they were on chlorthalidone. So that's another important point to highlight. There were some There was a subgroup analysis that came out a little bit later, kind of delving into those details. And that is really where um, we we get our recommendations for Black patients with regards to our upfront medications that that we start, Um, whether it's a calcium channel blocker or a thiazide diuretic versus, you know, starting an ACE inhibitor upfront. We didn't find it to be as effective in this patient population with uh, increased incidence of, of stroke and combined cardiovascular disease. And Liz, when it comes to that heart failure endpoint, I think I always think with related to the hypertension trials, they're very long follow-up and heart failure in particular is a symptom driven uh, evaluation and diagnosis. And so when you really compare a patient who's been on long-term amlodipine, we know the most common side effect they develop is edema. And so that sort of is a symptom that drives an evaluation in many patients, whereas a patient on chlorthalidone is less likely to develop that symptom, less likely to be evaluated. Um, And I think you can see that sometimes when you dive into these big trials where it's hard to know if there wasn't a forced evaluation of everyone's EF with a measurable reproducible means like echo. And so I think that's just really, it confounds some of those findings for me in trying to figure out, you know, if you're not having a difference in the incidence of MI, and your hypertension is controlled similarly, it's it's really hard for me to understand um, how those differences would have occurred. So Liz, you've been really expertly describing how these therapies weren't just either or, they had algorithms behind them that build in other therapies. I think maybe one of the cleanest trials for me and one I, I really like to refer to is one that was really trying to decide what combination therapy might be beneficial upfront. And that is the accomplished trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2008 was this comparison of benazapril plus HCTZ compared to ACE inhibitor, also benazapril plus amlodipine. You know, it was perhaps surprising to folks that ACE inhibitor calcium channel blocker combination really was superior to the HCTZ arm. And so that really led to a lot of controversies in and of itself. 
And I'd love to get your thoughts on this upfront combo kind of approach. Yeah. Accomplish is probably one of my favorite hypertension trials. I just think it's fun. And I like that it gives us a little bit more in terms of, you know, how to approach these patients upfront with, or just in general with combination therapy. So like you said, they compared an ACE inhibitor with either dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker um, or a thiazide diuretic. So specifically amlodipine or hydrochlorothiazide. So their primary composite endpoint, they had a a lot wedged in here was a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, stroke, hospitalization for unstable angina, coronary vascularization, or resuscitation after sudden cardiac arrest. A couple of other things I want to point out just before we jump into my thoughts on accomplish. So about 60% were male, 84% white, and 12% black. And I highlight that because we're going to talk about the black population just a little bit later on in, in management for this demographic. And their baseline blood pressure was 145 over 80 millimeters of mercury. And so I think there are some questions that have been asked about management of patients with hypertension are the reduction in blood pressure. Is that where we find the benefit or is the benefit found with the types of pharmacologic agents we use, or is it a combination of both? I suspect it's a combination, but I like this trial because it, it kind of gives us a little bit more in terms of, well, can the type of agent we use make an impact I say that because the mean blood pressure decreased similarly in both groups. So 132 over 73 millimeters of mercury in the calcium uh, calcium channel blocker group versus uh, 133 over 74 in the thiazide group. So their blood pressures were pretty similar, um, but they did find a difference in that composite endpoint. Now it was driven by a reduction in MI and coronary revascularization, but we, we still do find a difference. So I think it's nice that it kind of helped answer that question a little bit. So the type of agent you choose definitely matters. Um, But there was some controversy um, because we have some pretty robust data with chlorothaladone and the benefits that we see in our hypertension patients. And so one of the big critiques with Accomplish is that they use hydrochlorothiazide um, instead of chlorothaladone. So if you look at the 2017 uh, ACCAHA hypertension guidelines, they really say that chlorothaladone is preferred over hydrochlorothiazide. Part of this comes from the data that we've already talked about with regards to the benefits we found in outcomes with chlorothaladone. Um, Part of it, we also think may be attributed to the half-life. So chlorothaladone's half-life is about 40 hours versus hydrochlorothiazide. It's somewhere around six to 15 hours. So we wonder if maybe some of the benefit is just derived from having an agent with a longer half-life on. And that's kind of a theme you'll see when you look at what the preferred hypertension medications are for patients within classes. For me personally, when I'm practicing, I think a combination of an ACE inhibitor and a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker like amlodipine is reasonable in terms of hypertension management. If I'm going to go a thiazide route, um, I think for me personally, I would prefer chlorothaladone again, because of the studies that we've already discussed, because I know the half-life difference between them, which could potentially contribute to outcomes. And I really want to make sure that we're getting as much bang for our buck as we can when we're starting patients on these pharmacologic agents. And maybe worth just throwing back in there, there is the secondary endpoint of heart failure hospitalizations alone, which was very similar in these. And so there's another opportunity to directly compare. However, everything we've already said is is relevant. So it compared amlodipine now to HCTZ, and we don't find the same thing we saw with the comparison in all hat of amlodipine and chlorthalidone. 
So I tend to agree with you. I think um, that's that's similar to to my approach, but we have more information on this. In fact, um, we'll tease back to an entire episode, which you recently covered um, some of the deeper dive into the controversies between hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalidone. But uh, is there anything else you want to add in this classics episode related to that topic? So let me, um, just for our listeners, remind you um, just a little bit about the the trial that we're referring to. So it was this observational cohort study that looked retrospectively at chlorothalidone versus hydrochlorothiazide. Their primary outcome was acute MI, hospitalization for heart failure, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, or a composite of those three outcomes and sudden cardiac death. What they found was chlorothalidone wasn't significantly better than hydrochlorothiazide. And as anticipated, or maybe you you would have anticipated, um, there were more adverse effects associated with chlorothalidone. So specifically looking at like renal as well as uh, electrolyte abnormalities. So we we went into this pretty in depth with Dr. Karen McConnell um, back in March of 2020. So please go back and listen to that episode. There were a lot of really good nuggets that she shared. I don't know if I have really anything to add, just that there is um, this diuretic comparison project through the VA co-op that's currently underway. They're still actively recruiting as far as what I saw this morning. So it's a randomized open label trial. And so I'm really excited for that to come out. There are some inherent limitations with a retrospective trial that we we have to keep in mind. Um, so I'm looking forward to having a little more information to help maybe more so settle this um, question of hydrochlorothiazide versus chlorothalidone. I'll say in terms of when you're choosing between the two agents, it really needs to be, as with everything, very patient specific. Chlorothalidone does have, you know, we've seen across trials inherently more um, adverse effects that are associated with it. And so that's, that is something to, to keep in mind. And, you know, specifically related to those adverse effects, I think uh, they might owe also to that difference in people's dosing. So I feel like folks always give a larger dose of chlorothalidone on a potency than they do of hydrochlorothiazide or often, you know, if, if adverse effects are dose related, it's, it's not infrequent that I see chlorothalidone dosed essentially at the same milligrams as the hydrochlorothiazide that we're used to seeing, but does have that increased potency. So we're really seeing, you know, a patient getting 12 and a half of chlorothalidone, having similar blood pressure lowering to hydrochlorothiazide 25. If you dose them both at 25 milligrams, it uh, is not surprising that you see increased blood pressure lowering, increased hypokalemia and um, those sort of adverse effects. So all of the stuff we've talked about up to this point really led into the formation of the JNC7 guidelines, which I think were our last guidelines that might've been widely accepted. And then there's this huge pause and we have a long period of time. And then there's JNC8. And Liz, I know you have a lot of feelings about JNC8. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And so I, I want to maybe take a minute for our listeners to kind of outline a little bit of like the history with JNC8. So we had um, all of these JNC guidelines that would come out, you know, every few years or so. Um, and we had JNC that came out in, I believe it was 2003. And then we had this really long gap until we got JNC8. And, and during that time, a lot happened, as you can probably imagine. But the NHBLI, so they were really in charge of JNC8 and, and those guidelines coming out. But during that time, they decided to kind of take a step back and let external organizations be in charge of guideline development. 
And so technically, I just want to point out that JNC-8 isn't really a guideline. It's uh, classified as an evidentiary review. Really, the most controversial recommendation that came from this evidentiary review was the blood pressure goal. So they recommended a little bit higher of a, a blood pressure goal for patients that were over 60, 60 years or older. And it was of a, a blood pressure of less than 150 over 90 millimeters of mercury. This was not a um, unanimous agreement for everyone who was a part of JNC-8. And so five of the members, in fact, disagreed so much so that they came out with a, a publication kind of highlighting why they were concerned with this less stringent blood pressure goal. So they were concerned um, with this loss of blood pressure control. It could be harmful, especially for our high-risk groups. So thinking about our Black patients, which we are going to talk about that population um, in a little bit. And then patients with multiple cardiovascular risk factors. They also didn't feel that there was compelling evidence to increase the blood pressure threshold. And so with regards to JNC-8, I think there is a lot to kind of unpack there and think about. And I know we're going to talk about the SPRINT trial in, in just a moment. But with regards to these less stringent goals, personally, I, I share a lot of the concerns that were outlined by those five committee members. And I think especially for our Black patients, it, it concerns me because we, based on the data, already have not been effective in get, getting them at the blood pressure goals we need to in general. And they have just poor cardiovascular outcomes with regards to hypertension. So I think just to wrap this up, JNC-8 is not a guideline. It's an evidentiary review. And I think when we think about that less stringent blood pressure goal, we, we need to be cautious in terms of the opportunities that may be missed in specific populations to really help um, in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. Feel like there's more to the story? Well, stay tuned for part two. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at cardioscripts.com. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.